Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, and I am joined today once again by special guest co-host Kathleen Vanderwill. Hello, everyone. Happy to be back. Kathleen, we have another literary novel, and so you are our go-to. <laughs> I'm your what? go-to Goethe person, apparently. You are. We did Werther <laughs> recently, a Goethe story. And what's our Goethe story today? It is Faust. The version that we're doing is The Damnation of Faust by Berlioz. Because there were a lot of operas that were inspired by this work that Goethe wrote. Yes, a lot of operas inspired by the by this work and also just by the Faust story generally. It's one of the more adapted myths or legends in literary history. Well, we are going to talk more about all of that, but we need to jump right in because we don't have a long overture for this particular opera, La Damnation de Faust by Berlioz. Let's hear Faust singing a little bit. Solitude, loin 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is La Damnation de Faust by Hector Berlioz. I'm joined today by Kathleen Vanderwill. Kathleen, we have just met Dr. Faust. Tell us about him. Yeah, so Dr. Faust is our, our protagonist, Heinrich Faust. He's a bit of an aging scholar, and he has gotten to a place in his life where he's not really sure life is worth living because he's not able to fully get all of the knowledge out of life that he wants. So he's sort of perpetually unsatisfied, which which sets you up for some interesting things later on. I imagine. So we're, we're meant to think he has a very rich life of the mind, but he finds it not fulfilling. Mm-hmm. He's constantly, constantly unfulfilled. And in the beginning, he really contemplates whether he is able to ever transcend the limits of human knowledge. He wants more than, than what he can read in books, but he finds that impossible. In the play that this is based on, one of the things he does is he tries to turn to magic as a way to make him able to learn even more. But magic. His, yes, but his desire for knowledge is insatiable and, and really nothing nothing can quench it. So I had read, and you referenced this in when we first spoke, that this is a legend which predates the Goethe work, this legend of this character who is searching for more. Mm-hmm. And also I had read that there was an actual person named Dr. Faust who fits a bit of the description you made who got very involved in the black arts in magic. Exactly, yeah. His name is Johann Georg Faust, and he lived 1480 to 1540, so quite a bit before the different adaptations that we see. But his life and the legend that grew up around it inspired a lot of different versions. Probably one of the most famous that people may know is Marlowe, Christopher Marlowe, his play from late 16th century, The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus. And Marlowe's a contemporary of Shakespeare? Yes. He died right as Shakespeare was becoming famous as a playwright. And he might have been a spy. We can do a whole podcast about Marlowe. <laughs> <laughs> He's even a character in Shakespeare in Love, isn't he? He is indeed. Yes, he, his death is depicted in, in Shakespeare in Love. Because there's a little scandal intrigue. and intrigue <laughs> and talk. Okay, we'll forget about that. But there are many, many adaptations for yes. opera, for the, the the theater, for just symphonic adaptations of Faust and his legend, mm-hmm. and the name comes from this character, this this man who actually mm-hmm. who actually lived several centuries earlier. Okay, so our Faust is not happy, <laughs> and he's kind of alone, but there are a great many other people on stage besides Dr. Faust. Yes, so we find him, we kind of come upon Faust alone, but he's looking upon nature and seeing the sunrise, and there starts to be all these people coming in, these sort of peasants, who start singing about their lives, and he watches them and this simplicity and happiness that they bring to life, but is markedly unmoved by that. This is very contrary, I would say, to this other piece by Goethe that we talked about in a previous episode where... Werther? Werther, where his hero is incredibly moved by the simplicity and beauty of nature and the the peasants who live these simple, beautiful lives. Faust is the opposite. He is a bit of a snob and he does not really understand why their lives are worth living. 
Right. He's not charmed by nature. In fact, I, I grabbed a, a line out of the libretto here where he looks at all this and he says, well, my wretchedness grudges them their mm-hmm. delights. Like, if I'm not happy, no one gets to be happy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a pretty good description of him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But meanwhile, the, the peasants are going fa-la-la-la-la all the way. By the way, there is a huge chorus in mm-hmm. this piece. Yeah, the, the chorus comes in and, and really lends a, a powerful backdrop to some of the music. I don't know a ton about Berlioz, but I definitely associate him with just these huge swelling choruses now. He, yeah, well, on Opera for Everyone, not terribly long ago, uh, Grant co-hosted a, a show with me where we did Les Troyens, his enormous opera based on the Aeneid. So Les Troyens that I did with Grant was episode 59, if anyone's interested in hearing about that on our podcast. And also not so long ago as part of our Opera for Everyone Presents, where we did the five one-hours, episode 71.3 was <laughs> Symphonie Fantastique, a triumphal work that he created very early in his career. And oh my goodness, there's so much story of his mm-hmm. personal life. And it's just an hour-long program. Okay, (laughs) enough plugging for other opera for everyone's. Berlioz is a fascinating, fascinating artist. And I think it's worth mentioning pretty early on here, this was not originally written as a typical opera. It's right. There's always the question. One of the things that I noticed when I was looking through different versions of this is that everybody calls it something different. So the the Chicago Lyric Opera called it an opera, I believe, but then the Met calls it an oratorio. And then he himself called it, I can't remember what exactly. He called called it a dramatic legend. Right, which is not like a real category that existed at the time. It's the one he wanted to call it. So (laughs) he's the composer. That's what he chose. Right, of course. But yeah, I think that it's a perfect topic to create something that's totally different that's never been created before because that's kind of Faust. Faust has been so many different things and depending on what time period and who's doing the writing, everybody kind of sees it a little bit differently. So I, I think it's it's very proper subject for, for the type of piece that Berlioz wanted to create. Right. He ultimately lands on calling it a dramatic legend, but he originally called it an opera in concert. Hmm which I think pretty well hits the nail on the head. Yeah. Because when it premieres in 1864 at the Opera Comique, it's done as a, like a cantata or like an oratorio would be done, but it's operatic. And so mm-hmm. it's not a staged production. If, if oratorio and cantata are not familiar terms to you, it's not like you have sets and the characters are moving around and interacting with each other, but it's more that these characters exist and they are on stage along with this enormous chorus and the orchestra and they're they're acting through some of their gestures and voices but it's not costumed and staged the way we think of operas Mm. being staged interesting yeah one of the things i ran across a lot was how difficult it is to stage this as actual opera just because it's so fantastical and the things that berlioz envisioned especially the the scenes that will later when we later visit the, the pits of hell, um, were quite right. difficult to represent on stage during those times. Oh, yeah. And like a galloping ride on horses, <laughs> all sorts of things. A, a challenge for a director, for sure. Well, it's first staged as an opera in Monte Carlo in 
1893, so nearly 50 years after it premiered as a concert piece. Mm-hmm. It certainly is produced with some regularity, but not as often as, say, the opera, which I think is most commonly produced about Faust, which Gounod, also mm-hmm. a Frenchman, wrote. And then there's Boito's Mephistopheles, but maybe we'll do those in future episodes. (laughs) (laughs) All Goethe all the time. (laughs) Faust. It's rich source material for artistic expression. Absolutely. All right. So he's unhappy. The shepherds people, the country folk are going about their lives. But the characters on stage with him that he can observe are not just happy peasants and, and happy farms people. We're also going to get some soldiers showing up, which is a pretty common fact of life as well. Right. So he sees three different things when he's in in nature. So he sees nature itself, and that doesn't really charm him. And then he sees the peasants interacting in nature, and that doesn't really charm him for other reasons. And then he sees the glory of the soldiers practicing for war. And he says, (laughs) they're singing their victory song, all hearts throb, mine alone remains cold, indifferent to glory. So he's sort of seeing these different elements of humanity parade before him and realizing that each one of them in their own way leaves him totally indifferent. And that that makes him despair. Yeah, it stirs other men's souls and his soul is just bleak. Yes. Well, let us listen to this Hungarian march of these Hungarian soldiers that he is watching. And I'd like to just point out that this piece of music did not originate with Berlioz himself. This piece of music is an old folk tune that Berlioz simply loved, and he was very pleased to be able to find a way to put it in his own work. Its original composer or composers lost to the mists of time. No one knows where it originated. So in a way, it's a It's a way of him disseminating it to a wider audience, and it's very popular. And it became an unofficial anthem of sorts in Hungary.
was the Hungarian march from Hector Berlioz's La Damnation de Faust that ends part one of our four-part dramatic legend. As we jump into part two, Kathleen, where are we? So we are back in Faust's study with all his books and papers all spread about him. And he is thinking back on this experience that he's just had where he's seen all of humanity parade before him but is unmoved and he starts to talk about his own suffering and doing a lot of introspection this is something that is directly from the text of the play this is based on once again to reference back we talked about this a little bit when we did Werther that Goethe heavily emphasizes having his male characters be very introspective and emotional and really understand their own suffering in a way and be able to talk about their own suffering, which is somewhat unusual for the time period. It's a little bit of that romantic sensibility. Yeah, so so Goethe's, he's the one that really kicks off romanticism in Germany. So in a way, this is unusual for his time period, but will be very usual going forward. And by the time that this opera is staged, romanticism is in full, full swing. <laughs> Right, mid-19th century, Mm -hmm. exactly. But yeah, so he is talking about how really nothing, nothing can move him anymore. And he decides that because he can't attain any higher knowledge than he's already attained, poisoning himself is the only option. Suicide. Yes, another common theme in Goethe's work. Right, right. Well, we're only in part two of four, so I'm guessing he doesn't kill himself. No, indeed. He's, he's stopped right at the moment when he's going to lift the cup to his lips, and he hears the bells of a church, actually. Oh. So he starts to hear this singing, this religious singing from the, from the church, and it turns out that it's Easter, and the chorus comes in and, and is singing about Christianity, which is interesting, because in the early Faust myths, it's much more heavily Christianized. The early versions really, they do a parallel between, is it enough to know what a, what a Christian knows, or do you want to know what God knows? Oh. And if, you, if you're reaching for the dark arts, that's anti-Christian, because you're trying to have the knowledge that only God can have. That's really not as much a part of this, but I, I see these Easter choral parts as a bit of a resonance of that original Christian undertone. Right. That's interesting. I didn't I hadn't put that together when I was watching a production of this, just that hearing the choir sing Mm -hmm. Christ is Risen, the Easter hymn, reminded him that he is of this human race, that Mm -hmm. he is of this belief system, and it's deeply wrong for Mm -hmm. him to decide to end it all. Yeah, I think that that's definitely what it inspires in him. And... Faust is always searching for something to hold on to because he's found that his obsession with literature and knowledge is not nourishing enough. And so I think in this moment, it's a bit of him turning to religion for that to fill that same need in him. And as this goes on, he'll turn to several other different things, looking for something that's going to nourish that need. And right now, I think he is really moved by religion and it does stay his hand. So he does not kill himself. And I think that's that's what we're going to listen to a bit of next.
cell to prie. Damnation de Faust by Hector Berlioz. And towards the end there, Faust is moved. He says these gentle hymns of heaven, why awaken the cursed wretch in his dust? Because this hymn, this singing, has stopped him from taking his own life in his despair. And uh, someone pops in on stage, I believe, to help him with his despair. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it's so funny because you have, you know, absolutely no space in between him singing, heaven has won me back. And then right. and ta-da! The, the literal devil <laughs> appears. So subtlety is not quite, quite the order of the day here, but that's totally fine. We keep it moving. Mephistopheles appears suddenly and has decided that, well, 
here is a soul that is in need of a little temptation. Mephistopheles is <laughs> the devil, a devil. <laughs> I, I picture him just, yeah, he can just push him with his little finger. Like, I got you. <laughs> yep. I, he's, yeah, he, he doesn't waste his effort. I'll say that much. <laughs> so Mephistopheles appears and we get to talk about... Well, I think it's it's no no surprise to me that, that one of the major offers that's written about this story is just called Mephistopheles because yes. he's the most interesting character in any iteration of this. Yeah, it's one of the many names of the devil. Mm-hmm. The devil. Mm-hmm. Capital D. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and he, he pops in and he's just kind of poking fun at Faust and the simplicity that he sees, oh, really, this him has changed things for you? Are you, are you kidding me? Like, that's just a song. <laughs> yep. Let's, let's, let's see what we can do to interest you, Faust. I, I think I can take away your doldrums. Yeah, indeed. Idle, idle hands are the devil's playthings as it goes. And Mephistopheles shows up and says, exactly as you were saying, that you know, he's like, well, if that's enough to, to get you not to kill yourself, then it shouldn't be too hard for me to convince you to sell your soul. Well, and what, how does Mephistopheles answer Faust when Faust says, who are you? Like, who, who are you? <laughs> He, you know, he calls himself the spirit of life, the esprit de vie, um, that he's the, the consoler of men, which is really interesting because he, he's borrowing this, of course, super religious language that you would normally associate with Jesus, <laughs> but using it to describe himself, that he's the really, he's the one that really consoles men because he gives you everything you want, happiness, pleasure, anything you can desire or dream of. Right, because because he's all about the temptation. He's all, he's a good time Charlie in a way. <laughs> yep, exactly. It's why he's fun to watch. He's funny. He's the best dressed. <laughs> yeah. And he always steals the show. Yeah, it's all about pleasure. And he's talking about the simple pleasures. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Not the pleasures they were singing about in that in that hymn. No, no, indeed. He's going to introduce Faust to, well, I, I guess you could still say a simple pleasure. <laughs> One of the <laughs> oldest pleasures. Right. But yeah, he, he knows exactly how to tempt a man like Faust. And Faust is all ears. Faust says, oh, you have things to show me? Please do. I've been Let's searching. Well, and, and it makes sense for his character because Faust is the, the guy who wants to know everything. So... Here comes a guy who says, well, there's some things that you don't know, and I'm going to show them to you. Of course, that's gonna he's going to say yes. Yeah. Faust says, I'm all in. And Mephistopheles says, well, leave your books behind. Leave your philosophy behind. Come with me. Where do they end up? Well, they end up in a bar, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the first place that the devil takes you is a bar, obviously. Obviously, yeah, yeah. All right, well, well, tell us about this bar. What happens? So Mephistopheles takes Faust to this bar. And interestingly enough, Faust has already shown that he's kind of unmoved by the common peoples, using scare quotes there. But that's still the first place that Mephistopheles takes him, which is a little bit surprising because it's not necessarily what you think of when you think of Faust as a guy who's got who's going to be a drinking buddy with you. But that's, we're going to live the good life. We're going to start, we're going to start in a wine cellar. So in this bar, we have this chorus of drinkers that are just singing about the good life. Fun. Should we hear them? Let's do it. (laughs) 
poste Un séjour de folle compagnie Ici, vins et chansons Réjouissent la vie Dame Nation de Faust by Hector Berlioz on Opera for Everyone, and we have just heard our chorus of drinkers, our tavern dwellers having a rip-roaring good time with the wine. And this is how Mephistopheles is trying to tempt Faust. I have to say that the, the whole opera gets a little bit jollier once the devil shows up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a chorus of drinkers. It's definitely a different tone than Faust contemplating suicide alone. Right. So as expected, the devil has livened things up. Right. And one of the lines I just love, wine is better when you laugh. And there's this character that shows up in the tavern, Brander, and he's only the fourth of four characters who are not simply part of the chorus here, individually and named. And he really just has the job of being a jolly guy, the leader of the jolly guys in the tavern. He has a song that he sings about a rat in a kitchen. Mm-hmm. Doesn't end well for the rat, but he tries to have fun in the meantime. And then Mephistopheles thinks, oh, that's fun, but I can do you one better. I'm going to sing a song about a flea. Yeah, it's... um. <laughs> This whole subject matter interlude is so anti-Faust. It's so anti, I'm sitting in my study by myself with my dusty old books. It's so ribald and it's this sort of rude mechanicals, comedic presences here singing these body songs. 
which is kind of interesting. I should add that after Brander finishes his song, all the drinkers give him a few amens, just Mm. to tie it all together there. To to add some (laughs) piety. (laughs) But yes, Mephistopheles decides to one-up and has his little song about a flea, which is (laughs) super fun to listen to. I mean, let's let's live in the moment with Mephistopheles and, and listen to this fabulous song about a flea. <laughs> about a flea who gets a well-tailored suit to just enjoy life in. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mephistopheles and his song about the flea. Une puce gentille chez un prince logé Comme sa propre fille, le brave homme l'aimait Et l'histoire l'assure par son tailleur Un jour, lui fit prendre mesure Pour un habit de cour L'insecte plein de joie, dès qu'il se vit parer Dors de velours de soie, une croix décorée Fit venir de province ses frères et ses sœurs Qui par ordre du prince devinrent grand seigneur Mais ce qui fut bien pire, c'est que les gens de cour Sans en oser rien dire, se grattaient tout le jour Cruelle politique, appelaignons leur destin Et dès qu'une nous pique, écrasons la Assez fuyant ces lieux où la parole est vide, la joie ignoble et le geste brutal. N'as-tu d'autre plaisir, un séjour plus tranquille à me donner, toi, mon guide infernal Ceci te déplaît, suis-moi. Well, Mephistopheles has just told us a charming little story about a flea, and the drinkers in the tavern love it. Bravo, bravo, bravo. Squash it, yes. <laughs> Faust, Faust is not as charmed as the drunken guys are. And he says, let's get out of here. This is horrible. I don't like this. Don't you have any other pleasures? A quieter place? Something you can give me? And he does acknowledge, and he says, my satanic guide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's not, he's not blind. He knows who he's talking to. 
Yeah, yeah. But still, he is profoundly curious. Mm-hmm. So does Mephistopheles change the scene? He does indeed. Quite easily. He says, oh, you're not into this? All right, I got more, I got more up my sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> the devil has more than one trick. Yeah, so he decides that his next option is that he is going to put Faust to sleep and give Faust a, well, a pleasant, a pleasant dream. And he sings Faust to sleep in this sort of lullaby aria. And then we get into a fantastical dream sequence, which is full of interesting creatures. And we have some gnomes, we have some sylphs, we have some will-o'-the-wisps, and they all kind of frolic about the stage. Can you tell us what a sylph is? So a sylph is a, a sort of imaginary spirit of the air and uh, was used often to describe women who seemed very ethereal and thin during this time period as they were sylph-like, and that's the origin. Perfect for the dream that Mephistopheles is giving him. Yeah, so he, there's this sort of fantastical sequence and this chorus that sings Faust asleep, but the, the dream, as one would, would imagine, is about love. And so Mephistopheles has decided if, it, if drinking and, and songs of good life are not what Faust is looking for, I'm going to give him a dream of love. And so he makes Faust dream of a woman, Margarita. Oh, a particular woman, not just women in general. No, no, of course not. One woman in particular has to be the best woman. <laughs> um, so he, he sends him a dream of, of a woman named Margarita and, and Faust, while asleep, begins to call out her name.
Margarita, que je fuis, que je fuis. Quelle céleste image, quel ange offrant mortel. Le trouver, et quel hôtel traîner à ses pieds, ma louange. Eh bien, il faut me suivre encore. Jusqu'à cette alcôve embaumée Où repose ta bien-aimée À toi seul ce divin trésor Des étudiants, voici la joyeuse corde Qui va passer devant sa porte Parmi ces jeunes fous au bruit de leurs chansons, vers ta beauté nous parviendrons. Mais contiens tes transports et suis bien mes leçons. That was a lovely dream, but Faust wakes up, doesn't he? He does, yeah. So in this dream, because he's seen the perfect woman, when you wake up, obviously you're going to want to go find who this woman is. And so he wakes up and, and says, you have to take me to her. What is this angel? Where can I find her? And of course, in that moment, Mephistopheles knows that, that he's won because he's finally found something that excites Faust and, and enchants him. He's hooked his fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, drinking and, and body songs, that was not Faust's cup of tea. But mm-hmm. the perfect angelic woman, <laughs> now he's interested. Who could resist? <laughs> yeah, and Mephistopheles requires obedience from Faust, doesn't he? Yes, so he says, I will take you there, but you have to follow my instructions very carefully. And he doesn't really tell him much about what he's going to need him to do, just that he wants him to act normally. Don't don't call out with rapture about this woman. Just yeah. keep it together and I'll lead you to her. And then we, we kind of immediately break to humanity breaks back in from this dream state. And we have all of these soldiers and students that are in the town that they're going towards to find this woman. Let's hear a little bit from the soldiers and the students before we meet this angelic woman. Perfect woman. Oh, my God. 
Opera for Everyone, and we're listening to La Damnation de Faust by Hector Berlioz, and the devil has got a live one. He's <laughs> got Faust interested, and where do we go now with the devil and Faust? Up to my lady's chamber, of course. Oh no, <laughs> poor Margarita. <laughs> well, she doesn't get much of a choice at the beginning, it's true. But Mephistopheles spirits Faust into her chamber. Margarita is not there at this point. It's just he's able to sort of breathe the same air that this woman that he loves has breathed, and that's enough for him. Yeah, this isn't creepy at all. No, no, completely, (laughs) completely rational, not at all stalker-like. And, you know, to give Goethe a little bit of credit here, he does give us a little bit more scaffolding (laughs) than this. Um, There's a little more story. So in the story, in the play... Faust and Mephistopheles have gone to take refuge. They need to stay in somebody's house for various reasons. So Marguerite takes them in, basically. And is like, of course you can stay. Oh, they play on her kindness. Yes. And and so he's able to meet her and have more of a, at least one conversation before he's reveling and breathing the same air. Right, right. But we got to keep things moving. That is one of the interesting things. This is nearly a two and a half hour piece. I feel like it moves so quickly because there's so much going on in this oh, piece. Oh, absolutely. And we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. I was saying, oh, this is such a short opera. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a short opera, but it feels short because it's so packed full of stuff. And there's just, we're drinking in the town and then we're sleeping in the woods and then we're in my lady's bedroom within, it seems like a second. Yeah. But we love that. It keeps the story moving. <laughs> I do. Uh, yes, it is. It's great. I mean, it's not a long opera, about two and a half hours or a little less than that, but it, it, it is packed full and it moves along. And here we are in Marguerite's bedroom. And this is just Faust now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Sharing his observations and feelings with us. Yes, he's looking at all of the things that are associated with her. He looks about himself and he sees her bed, for instance, and he exclaims oh this is the bed where she sleeps her maiden bed he calls it yeah hint hint he fetishizes her her virginity she's this pure pure creature and he calls himself a martyr after my long martyrdom this is the happiness that's in store for him which is really quite a shift in his thought process from suicide to religious ecstasy to drinking to love is the the thing that's going to be my reward for martyrdom why he feels that he's a martyr is is unclear right and i also feel like he's not acknowledging her as a person no i would with her say own he is not thoughts and feelings agency no <laughs> No, absolutely. No, she's just there for his pleasure. Yeah, and wow. you know, we can talk about Marguerite a lot more, but um, there's quite a difference in, in how this story is depicted in the play versus the opera. And I would say it's, it's more romanticized in this version than it is in Goethe's play, where it's a bit more of a cautionary tale, we'll say. All right, we are going to be talking much more along those lines in the second half. Let's listen to this music, closing out our first half. And you need to stay tuned so that you can find out more about all of this. (laughs) 
Listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandalow. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. Today's opera is La Damnation de Faust by Hector Berlioz. And I'd like to just share with you who we're listening to today. The role of Faust is being sung by Richard Verreaux. Mephistopheles is by baritone Michel Roux. And Marguerite is being sung by mezzo-soprano Consuelo Rubio. The conductor was Igor Markovich. And this was recorded with the orchestra L'Amoureux in Paris. And I was negligent. Kathleen, I can't believe you let me get away with this. I'm sorry. Distracting you. I haven't yet credited our librettists. So Hector Berlioz often worked on his own librettos, and this is no exception, but he did have a partner with this. So the libretto is by Hector Berlioz and Almira Gondinier. And it's based on a French translation of Goethe's Faust, the translation by Gérard de Naval. And now, Kathleen, this is the time when we typically do the opera helmet quiz. But once again, I'm going to just <laughs> ask you for a concise summation of our plot so far, because we have so much good stuff to get into in the second half. It's true. Yes, happy to. So we first met our main character, Faust, contemplating whether or not anything in this world could fulfill him or satisfy him now that he's attained all the knowledge that he possibly could, deciding that answer is no and the only answer is suicide. But then meeting instead Mephistopheles, the devil, who appears and offers him instead a look at the the various pleasures that life can hold that he has not yet sampled, including drinking, which does not really sway Faust. So then Mephistopheles tries his second tack, which is love. And that brings us to where we left off, which is in Marguerite, the beautiful virgin's bedchamber. Yes, and Faust is there with Mephistopheles. And this next little bit that's playing underneath us is Mephistopheles warning Faust, oh, I hear her coming. Quick, we have to hide. (laughs) I repeat, not at all creepy. (laughs) No, no, this is really normal behavior. (laughs) And, And so they hide. And we have 
essentially Marguerite alone after Faust swooningly says, be still my soul. Yes, his heart is bursting with joy. (laughs) And so Marguerite comes in and she sort of expresses that she's had this dream last night where she saw who she describes as her future lover. And of course, very recently, Mephistopheles has made Faust dream about Marguerite. Coincidence, do you think? Mm. (laughs) The devil's tricks. (laughs) Indeed. So yes, we're finding out that they have both been dreaming of each other, that Mephistopheles has put them in each other's dreams. And this has really impacted Marguerite, who, as I hinted a little before, is very innocent, virginal, not known to have dreams of her future lover in the past. But here we are. And she describes it as she really wants to to meet him, to see him. He's so real to her that she almost feels like she's going mad because it was such a vivid dream. And interestingly, once she's shared all this with us, she sings a song, not just about what her feelings are, but she sings a, a sort of a song within the opera about a king. Yes, so sort of similar to the way in which we have this little interlude in the wine cellar where they sing about the mouse and they sing about the flea. It's these sort of um, almost fables that they're using to illustrate the themes of the opera. And the same thing happens here where Marguerite sings a song about the King of Thule. This is from a poem by Goethe that he actually adapted and added into the play, but is an earlier poem by him. Oh, so... It's a, it's a Goethe poem, mm-hmm. but he put it in his own play. Yes, he put it in his own play, and then it made its way um, into this adaptation of the opera as well. Oh, wow. And it doesn't have, it, this is not based, as far as I could, could discern, on an actual king. It's just something that Goethe found fanciful, that he's made this legend, which in short is sort of there was a king who loved a woman so much, and she, she handed him a cup, a golden cup, And then she died very suddenly, and he refused to ever drink out of anything except this golden cup, refused to give up that. He gave up all of his other lands and possessions, but he wanted to die and be buried with this golden cup. (laughs) So it's it's a little story of of true and everlasting love. All right, take it away, Marguerite. Oh, 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and that was Marguerite from La Damnation de Faust by Hector Berlioz. I'm here with Kathleen Vanderwill, who is helping us with this amazing Goethe story, this this story that's really fixed into the culture, the fact that we 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 know who Faust is and we associate him with the devil. Yes, you might have heard the term Faustian bargain, which has kind of entered you right. know, maybe not common speech, but <laughs> but it's not an uncommon thing to, to call basically a deal with the devil. And the concept of making a deal with the devil really comes from Faust. Right. And people use that expression, oh, I'd sell my soul to the devil for another piece of that chocolate cake. Or, exactly. I mean, they use it lightly. <laughs> um, this is yes. pretty serious stuff. Yeah, well, he's he sold his soul pretty lightly. I mean, I guess for a man who was very recently contemplating suicide, it doesn't feel like <laughs> as big of an act, perhaps. But um, but yeah, he sold his soul pretty lightly. He is a man who hungers after knowledge, but the thing that really got him to sign the papers was a woman, was knowledge of what it's but like to... But he hasn't to... signed yet, has he? I think, yeah, it's, he's, he's just said he will sign. <laughs> He's, he's made a promise. He's agreed to work with the devil, a handshake deal. <laughs> yeah, that's right, a handshake deal. <laughs> okay, so we've met the beautiful, virginal young woman who has dreamed of Faust, and Faust has dreamed of her. We've got Mephistopheles hiding Faust away. Where does Mephistopheles take us next? So he decides that he needs to reinforce that it wasn't just a dream that he sent to Marguerite. So he is about to tell his followers that we kind of met before, his sylphs and little mythical creatures, that we need to sing a song to her outside of her window that will convince her this isn't just a dream and you should be preparing for this man who's going to be your husband. And in fact, that the song actually is a little bit a little bit body says, you know, pleasure is going to be calling. You're going to go into this man's room and you may enter a maid, but you will not come out one. Oh, well, that's pretty direct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he does say, I guess to his credit, Mephistopheles says, put up a strong resistance. And if he doesn't first offer you a wedding ring. So there is, I guess, a, a sort of Christian morality that's reasserting itself. But I, I imagine that different Mephistopheles choose to sing that with different levels of seriousness. Yeah. I, you know, I, I watched it this recently and I missed the part about the wedding ring because he's not real big into the, the, <laughs> the Christian traditions and those sacraments. No, indeed. I mean, he's luring an innocent woman to 
well, to, you know, to lose herself and become a loose woman, really. I mean, it, it's a nice gesture, I guess, for him to say that Faust is going to marry her, but that hasn't really been what he's been saying to Faust. It's more, you will have this woman, you'll possess her, not, I found you a, a nice, suitable wife. All right. Well, let's listen to Mephistopheles and his serenade. just had a very compelling serenade by Mephistopheles here in Berlioz's Damnation of Faust. And Kathleen, have the efforts of Mephistopheles worked on our unsuspecting young woman? Oh, yeah, she's completely won over. <laughs> she's won over. Uh-huh. So she she's a innocent woman with very little characterization besides the fact that she's innocent. So I don't think she has particular wiles to protect her against the devil. So she's one. But she doesn't see the devil. Who does she see? So Faust appears before her in her room, normal. (laughs) And she's, well, I mean, she's a little freaked out, I guess, that there's a man in her room all of a sudden, but she's more excited that the man from her dreams is in her room. So this feels like magic. Mephistopheles is her fairy godmother in this in this instance for her. Well, She's it is so essentially, it's magical, right? Yeah. And, and to Faust as well. I mean, he's a man of the world intellectually with learning and knowledge, but in terms of the heart, it seems to me this is just as new and exciting to him. I agree. And he's represented, especially more so in the play, as he's an aging scholar too. He's not just 
I think he's represented as younger in the opera, but in the play, it's very specific that he's getting older. And so he hasn't really, he's lost sort of the chance, I think, to have a family. So this is a big deal for him. And yeah, it is interesting to think about if you were staging this. I mean, Mephistopheles is such a flamboyant character and is so very obviously the devil, but I could see it would be interesting to, if you didn't know that Mephistopheles was the devil and you just knew that he was a friend helping out, he wouldn't seem evil at this point in a way. Like he, everything he's doing is just like, let me introduce you to all these new things. Um, We're going to have fun. (laughs) Well, I have to say in the production, in the staged production that I watched of this in the very beginning, when you see Faust, his hair is gray and he has a big Mm. bushy gray beard and he looks old but once he signs up to hang out with Mephistopheles ah. all of a sudden the gray is gone and he looks like a much younger man wow well that that's a nice trick to have up your sleeve mm-hmm. um yeah I mean it this is it's metaphorically and physically making him younger I think that's a that's a cool way to to stage it but yeah I mean I think we we talk a lot about these characters in a sort of ominous sense, but nothing really bad has happened to anybody yet. It's just, we're at the very beginning of Romeo and Juliet here. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> well, I let's hear a little snatch of the love song between the two of them, because this is the one moment that we get to see the two of them being blissfully happy, mm-hmm. where he sings, Beloved Angel.
that was the love duet between Faust and Marguerite. Very beautiful. We finally get to have a moment with just the two of them. Very happy. (laughs) One moment of sweetness with the devil lurking in the corner. Eh, You know, can't have everything. (laughs) Can't have real privacy. Yeah, so he... Oh, man. Marguerite is such a pure and innocent character, and all of her language really reflects that she... You know, she sees this as more of a plan by God than a plan by the devil. Right. Well, and and his his language, calling her an Mm -hmm. angel, right? That seems... Well, it it really harkens back to all the fact that Mephistopheles uses all this religious language that's coded in a way to make him sound like he's on the side of the good people, (laughs) but, you know, is in fact on the other side. That's how the devil works. Indeed. (laughs) So this beautiful love song, though, this moment is interrupted by a whole clamor of voices. We get this chorus that comes in and Mephistopheles comes in and and interrupts them and says, quick, it's too late. Something terrible has happened. Um, (laughs) And Marguerite says, who's this guy? (laughs) I love that. Who is this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's like, I'm not sure about your friends here. So I I feel like it's worth taking a second to, to pause here and talk a little bit about the play that it's based on. So... There's a, there's a lot more stuff in this part of the play than they have in the opera. They have this really brief period of time together here, but in the play they have a lot longer together, several Faust, weeks. Faust, just Faust and Margaret, oh, several weeks? Well, he's staying in her house, basically. Mephistopheles and Faust are both staying in her house in the play. So it's, oh, it's not just not a... that's not going to cause the neighbors to talk at all. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and, and the mother is aware that Faust is there. Oh. And in fact, the, the sleeping draft, we're going to find later that Marguerite gets in some trouble for administering a sleeping potion to her mother that actually happens at this point in the play because she wants to be alone with faust and her mother is very protective so she gives her the sleeping draft so that she can spend some time alone with marguerite is drugging her mother so that she is unconscious (laughs) so it's a little bit less innocent maiden in the in the play yes because she's drugging her mother (laughs) but she gets that potion from Faust, right? Yes, she's she's egged on to do it. But yeah, so she in the in the play, she is drugging her mother for that purpose, and she discovers. And one of the reasons why it's such a big deal that Faust ends up leaving her, as we're about to hear, is that she's pregnant in the play. Of course, of course, of course. But that is left out of here. So just to go back to to our actual text here, what we're about to hear is the neighbors have become suspicious of the fact that Marguerite has a man in her bedroom. Very nosy neighbors, but... But very typical. (laughs) A small town. Yeah. And so Faust and Mephistopheles have to make haste and leave. And Marguerite is left alone, even though she's found this love of her life. And who knows what may have happened while they were alone, but she is is now left by him. Right. And in this opera, Mephistopheles is playing the good guy, where he says, we must save this angel Mm -hmm. because the neighbors are coming and they're going to blow everything and they're going to ruin her reputation. So here he is acting as the voice of morality, which is funny in a way. <laughs> it is funny. I mean, it's this whole sort of, yeah, he's a false friend in a way because he's the one who's lured her into this. And then he's the one that's going to cry foul and say, oh, I'm, you know, your reputation, oh my. I sort of imagine behind the scenes that it's Mephistopheles that's told the neighbors that they should go check it out. I think that that may not be in the text, but... 
Right. But that's what I'm imagining has happened. Well, we're going to listen to the piece of music which ends this third part of this four-part story. And it's one of my favorite pieces of music because you have the three of them doing what only opera can do, where they're all singing simultaneously, sharing their thoughts and feelings. But then also the chorus joins in, and these are the neighbors showing up to see what hanky-panky is going on (laughs) at Marguerite's house. So let's listen to this final piece from the third part of La Damnation de Faust. Déjà tous les voisins, éveillés par nos chants, accourent désignant la maison aux passants. En voyant Marguerite, il s'appelle sa mère, la vieille va venir. Il faut partir dans la sillon, faut vous verrez demain, à consolation, et bien près de la peine. Et demain, bien aimé, dans la chambre prochaine, des gens j'entends des bruits.
La Damnation de Faust, and we're back with Margarita, and she is alone. She has been abandoned. We don't really know how much time has passed, but Faust has left her, as we as we saw in the previous song, and she's here remembering him and thinking about him and despairing that she's ever going to see him again. Right. She sings, his departure, his absence are like the grave for me. Yeah. That happiness was momentary very, in terms very. of its depiction in this in this piece. Yeah, and she she talks about she talks about how the fact that she's missing him is consuming her youth, eating away at her and turning her into an old woman basically. And she gets very explicit. She talks about his caresses, his kisses, almost speaking about him as if they've had a much longer acquaintance, but she has no idea if he's if he's really ever coming back. Right. Peace has fled from my soul forever. Well, let's hear a little bit from Marguerite. Thank you. 
Well, that's poor Margarita. And Faust, meanwhile, is being chided by Mephistopheles. Ever the good guy, or so he (laughs) pretends to be, Mephistopheles says, while you're here dreaming, that poor child, Marguerite, she's all alone. And Mm -hmm. he's pouring the guilt on Faust. Yeah, Mephistopheles does a great job, as the devil I suppose should, of, of (laughs) (laughs) of making you feel guilty for doing things that he led you into doing. Right. Yeah, and we find out even more about that in in the next couple of pieces where he talks about the fact that Marguerite has borrowed, as I as I mentioned before, this draft of brown liquid from Faust. Mephistopheles sings about these like, don't you remember you gave her this poison so that the mother would go to sleep and you could hang out together? And he just drops this bomb in the middle <laughs> right. of, of he says, "Oh yeah, she's in prison. She's uh-huh. going to she's condemned to death." Right. And that after basically Faust has been sulky, sulky, "Don't give me a hard time." I I I just, that's what I did. But when he hears that she's been taken to jail, he Mm -hmm. is attending to what Mephistopheles is saying now. (laughs) Yes, that's important enough to get his attention away from himself. Right. Yeah, I, I think this is so interesting. So we get this big plot point just totally dropped in at the very end that Marguerite is in jail. Uh huh. Because she gave her mother this sleeping draft and it, she gave her too much and it was an accident but her mother's dead she's killed her mother so all of a sudden we go from this marguerite this beautiful sort of longing aria to by the way she's in prison and she's going to be hanged for killing her mother well and mephistopheles explains you gave her this and when you stopped going to see her she still kept drugging her mother every night so that in case you came she would be ready for you it was just too many doses of this Mm -hmm. that killed her quite a guilt to lay upon him this is his fault even though he once again was led into it by the devil he made the choice to abandon her he made the choice to stay away one of the things i think is very interesting is in the play marguerite is in prison and she has accidentally killed her mother but she's not in prison for killing her mother right She is in prison because she was pregnant and she gave birth while Faust was away. And she was so frightened and ashamed that she drowned her child. And that is what she is to be hung for. So a much, much darker tone to the play. Yeah, and the the first draft of Faust, which a lot of people, scholars call the Ur-Faust, which I just think is, is a funny way to refer to it. She is really damned for this. So we're about to see that Mephistopheles and Faust are going to have a conversation about her soul and whether her soul can be saved. And in different versions of the original play, Goethe went back and forth about whether he thought she deserved to be saved. And in his first version, he decided she did not. But then in a later version, decided that she she did because her innocence was just corrupted by the devil and this this evil man. So yeah, it's pretty pretty heavy. Yes, exactly. For her, this young innocent woman to be the cause of the death of her mother and her child. The child, however, is not mentioned, not referred to, entirely missing from this this story. And the Mm -hmm. death of the mother is enough. And when Faust really realizes that Marguerite is in profound trouble, he insists to Mephistopheles, you have to go save her. We have to go save her together. And Mephistopheles says, well, I've done so much for you. What have you done for me? And Faust is like, well, whatever you want. And here's where we get a very iconic moment. Yeah, so Mephistopheles says, all right, fine. 
can you do a little something for me? Gus says, what? And he says, huh, merely just sign this old paper. Seal your oath with some, some actual, sign it with your own blood, and I will save her immediately. So as we talked about before, this was a bit of a gentleman's agreement. It is no longer. Now he has signed away his soul in order to save the woman that he loves. Most officially signed away. And now this next piece of music... Just imagine the two of them racing on horseback. You will hear it in the music and you will be able to picture what's going on. Because remember, when this is first produced and presented, and for many decades, and probably more frequently now than in a fully staged version, it is just a choral piece, a a piece with orchestra and some soloists and and a chorus. And you have to imagine it all, but Berlioz music allows you to do that. Dans mon cœur retentit sa voix désespérée Au pauvre abandonné Salut, salut, votre nom 
right. So we have just ridden as if the hounds of hell were pursuing us. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> quite literally. <laughs> yes. And Mephistopheles and Faust have ridden so hard to try and save Marguerite that they have fallen into a pit. And that pit is the pit with a capital P, the pit of hell. Yes. We enter this sort of, I mean, there's just, I mean, as you just heard, there's just this this cacophony of noises and, and women who are sort of trying to pray and are, are calling out to different saints that they hear as they fall. And then Faust is, is terrified and Mephistopheles says, don't think about what you're seeing. Think about the fact that you're going to save her life. But it's, <laughs> it's pretty terrifying. And the music, Berlioz has this fantastic way of just using the instruments in the orchestra to just make you really feel like you're you're right there in hell. Well, it's excitement, it's terror, and it's Mephistopheles in triumph. Mm-hmm. He has achieved his goal. Yes. He has damned this man. And it's interesting to me because depending on what sort of tradition you're coming from religiously, there's nothing really that unique about Faust. It's not like Faust is, Faust isn't Job. Faust isn't the one true honorable man. He is in fact a man who was contemplating suicide five minutes before he meets the devil. So he's he's a man who was already, had a lot of sins, I think probably on his heart. Easy prey, easy prey for the devil. Right, it's not as if the, the devil is, oh, I got a good one. It's just yeah. his triumph and all the devil needs to triumph is to make one man fall into hell. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's celebrating that. And then we hear this absolute pandemonium of voices they call them the princes of darkness so and pandemonium is the official title of this section of the Mm -hmm. the piece yes which which literally of course in latin means all of the demons (laughs) which is what this is and they are singing and screaming out in this made up gobbledygook language the language of hell And so interesting to me that one of the parts that we are able to understand, these evil beings ask Mephistopheles, did Faust sign the fatal deed freely? Mm -hmm. And that seems to be important because Mephistopheles confirms, yes, Mm -hmm. he signed freely. And everybody's happy about that. It's true. And I guess you could argue what it means to sign it freely because he (laughs) he did it under the the impetus of trying to save this innocent woman's life. So I, I'm not sure a court of law would, would hold up that he signed that freely. It sounds like duress to me. But that's the, the cleverness of the devil, that he leads you into doing things that have consequences. And once those consequences come about, i.e. Marguerite's potential to be hanged, if you then have to sign your soul away in order to make those consequences be reversed, it's still your fault and it's still freely. So he's caught caught Faust in a trap here and is able to triumph in his downfall. All right, we're going to hear a little bit of pandemonium and then a brief epilogue. Je suis maître à jamais. 
has been consumed in hell. Mephistopheles is triumphant. But that's not where we end this opera. We have an epilogue. So I suppose that means we have to return to Marguerite. Is she dead? She is. She's been hanged and she is in hell, I suppose, for her deeds. But because she was saved by Faust's love, heaven is going to reach its heavenly hand into hell and bring her up. So it's called in the text her apotheosis, which really means her becoming a god. But it, it's in a way she's becoming an angel, an angel in heaven. And her, her sins are all forgiven. So our enormous chorus is now a chorus of heavenly spirits. So quite a contrast to the pandemonium we were just experiencing. Yeah, we go straight from the pits of hell up to the heights of heaven, as only a wonderful orchestra playing Berlioz can do. Right. I was looking at the libretto here, and the English translation says, rise up to heaven, you artless soul. But I almost like the use of the word naive in the Mm. original French. Yeah. I mean, Um, that's correct. She is very naive. And I think she has to be. I think that's part of why they removed the, the pregnancy from this. It's important that she's innocent. Not that, I mean, we obviously have a lot of sympathy for a woman in her situation in the play, but given the morals of the time, mid-19th century, they were a lot a lot less forgiving of that sort of moral slip than we would be now. Absolutely. Thank you, Kathleen. That's really good context because sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap of using our own worldview when we're looking at things from not our time and place. So I appreciate that. 
Well, are we ready to hear this choir of heavenly spirits bringing Marguerite up to heaven? Yeah, we will leave you guys with some some heavenly music. Kathleen, again, thank you so much for joining Opera for Everyone today. This was wonderful. And thank you, Pat. I always enjoy being a guest here. All right, here we go. Heavenly Spirits. Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanderwill. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable, because we believe... Opera is for everyone.